just steal this so you'll be able to hear me. That wouldn't be okay? Good. Can you hear me now? That sounds like an old ad for something. Good to be with you again today and uh, to share with you. Some of you, um, particularly if you have young children, may be familiar with the struggles of a fictional character named Alexander. You, you meet him in the book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. <laughs> in the further adventures of Alexander, Alexander, who used to be rich last Sunday, you find Alexander dealing with the problem of temptation, our topic for today. In part, he recounts this. It isn't fair that my brother Anthony has two dollars and three quarters and one dime and seven nickels and 18 pennies. It isn't fair that my brother Nicholas has one dollar and two quarters and five dimes and five nickels and 13 pennies. It isn't fair because what I've got is bus tokens. And most of the time, what I've got is bus tokens. And even when I'm very rich, I know that pretty soon what I will have is bus tokens. I know because I used to be rich last Sunday. Last Sunday, Grandma Betty and Grandpa Louie came to visit from New Jersey. They brought locks because my father loves locks. They brought plants because my mother likes to grow plants. They brought a dollar for me and a dollar for Nick and a dollar for Anthony, because we like money, a lot, especially me. Because last Sunday when I was rich, I went to Pearson's drugstore and got bubble gum. And after that gum stopped tasting good, I got more gum. And even though I told my friend David I would sell him the gum in my mouth for a nickel, he still wouldn't buy it. (laughs) Goodbye, 15 cents. I absolutely was saving the rest of my money. I I positively was saving the rest of my money. Except that Eddie called me up and said he would rent me a snake for an hour. I always wanted to rent Eddie's snake for an hour. Goodbye, 12 cents. Nick said I was too dumb to be let loose. My father said there are certain words a boy can never say, no matter how ratty and mean his brothers are. My father fined me five cents each for saying them. Goodbye, ten cents. Last Sunday, when I used to be rich, by accident, I flushed three cents down the toilet. A nickel fell through a crack when I walked on my hands. Last Sunday, when I used to be rich, I found this candy bar just sitting there. I rescued it from being melted and smushed. I ate it. How was I supposed to know it was Anthony's? Goodbye, 11 cents. I absolutely was saving the rest of my money. I positively was saving the rest of my money. But then Nick did a magic trick that made my pennies vanish into thin air. He hasn't learned the part about bringing them back yet. Goodbye, 4 cents. Last Sunday when I used to be rich, Kathy around the corner had a garage sale. I positively only went to look. I looked at a half-melted candle. I needed that candle. I looked at a bear with one eye, and I needed that bear. Last Sunday, when I 
used to be rich. I used to have a dollar. I don't have a dollar anymore. I've got a one-eyed bear and a half-melted candle and bus tokens. Alexander learned something about temptation. You know, it's hard to say no to temptation, even though for most of us, the temptations we face are a little more significant than one-eyed bears or half-melted candles. But like, like Alexander, we find it difficult to say no. We may positively, absolutely determine, we're not going to do that anymore. And then we do. The Apostle James talks about temptation in his short, extremely practical letter. He tells us in James chapter 1, the opening of his letter, that we're all going to face two things. We can't escape them. We're going to face trials and we're going to face temptations. Trials must be endured. Temptations must be resisted. Now, last week, we looked at what he had to say about trials. This morning, I want to see what he has to say about this matter of temptation. So if you'll look in James chapter 1, verse 13 to 18, we read this. And I'm, I'm sure it's a familiar passage. At least some of these verses will ring uh, in your mind. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James says, in effect, when you think about temptation, look ahead, see where sin leads. And if you see where sin leads, you will have motivation for saying no to temptation. So the first thing we need to know in dealing with temptation and understanding temptation, we need to know what it is. And so James gives us four characteristics that define temptation for us. He tells us that temptation is an unending process. You don't fight this battle once and that's it, you're home free. It's an unending process. Temptation is a personal process. What tempts you may not tempt tempt the next person. Uh, When you face temptation, how you deal with it is a personal thing. It's a personal responsibility. He tells us that temptation is a consistent process. It always leads to the same destination. It always leads to disaster. It always leads, if responded to, to death. And he tells us, fourth, that temptation is a deceptive process. Think about those four characteristics. He tells us temptation is an unending process. You can't get away from it. It's everywhere. Um, In fact, I, I think it could be argued that temptation is more prevalent today than it has ever been before in the history of the world. I think that could be argued. There's an excellent, very helpful book by Charles Durham called Temptation, Help for Struggling Christians. And in that book, he makes these points. He says, I am convinced that there is more temptation in our day than ever before. It is increasing in several ways. 
First, it is increasing in sheer amount. There are no new temptations, but the old ones come along more often. Our technology provides us with tools which whet the old appetites to new sharpness and bring the old temptations into the reach of every person. Second, to yield to temptation is increasingly accepted. Many behaviors once forbidden are now perfectly acceptable to society. Just a footnote there, you've seen that. What 30 years ago was unthinkable soon became normalized. And then it became socially acceptable. And then it became legal. And now it is becoming increasingly unacceptable to speak against it. You've seen the process. You see the pattern. It is increasingly accepted. He said, third, temptation is increased, has increased in intensity. For example, the appeal to greed is brighter and slicker, more lifelike and real. Fourth, temptation has increased in pervasiveness. Unless one becomes a recluse, it's no longer possible to build walls high enough to keep its appeal away. And fifth, temptation has increased in persuasiveness. We are told that there are good reasons based on science and psychology and sociology for forgetting the old rules of behavior. This places us in a very different ballgame. It's no longer a matter of everyone being in agreement about what is wrong and what is right, with some folks conforming and some not. There's no longer any agreement. And we know that that's true. You know, the devil is relentless, and his, his temptations are unending. James says, let no one say when he is tempted. Not if he is tempted, when he is tempted. There's something inevitable about it. He said the same thing about trials, didn't he? When you're tried. There's something inevitable about trials. There's something inevitable about temptation. They, they'll come. We'll never arrive at the place in our Christian life where we're not tempted. And there's no place that we can go where temptation is not present. Temptation is just as strong in a monastery as it is in a factory. Temptation is just as real working in a church group as working in a construction camp. Temptation is just as real in a Christian school as it is in a public school. Nowhere you can go to get away from it. And temptation can take many, many different forms. It can take the form of the material. Things as large as a house or as small as a ring. Uh, Things as new as a car or as old as antique furniture. Temptations can, can be abstract things like power or reputation or or fame. Uh, Temptation can also be sensual, a desire for enjoying physical pleasures. And oftentimes it isn't that the desire itself is wrong. The problem is we're tempted to meet a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. Um, Charles Durham, again, in his book, Temptation, Help for Struggling Christians, um, 
speaks well to this. He said back of every theft, there was somewhere a desire for ownership that became misdirected. Behind every act of gluttony, there was once a pleasure in good food that God gave. Beneath every instance of adultery has been a desire to be loved, to experience closeness, to know the warmth of human touch, and to have satisfied a sexual drive that was conceived in the mind of God. This does not justify any sin. It merely shows more clearly what temptation really is. Temptation means being lured to fulfill good desires in some illegitimate way. And again, temptation can take many forms. But whatever form it takes, it's never far away. So one silver lining in that cloud is since temptation is inevitable, it's not cause for despair. When you're tempted, it's not reason to say, oh, I give up, I can't handle this Christian life. Um, The Bible tells us Jesus was tempted like as we are. Well, if even Jesus was tempted, why wouldn't I be tempted? Now, we're tempted with different things. I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread. (laughs) I couldn't do that if I wanted to. But then again, Jesus was never tempted to covet a Corvette either. (laughs) The point is not that he experienced every temptation we face, but that he faced all kinds of temptations, as do we. It's not a cause for despair. The second characteristic, James says, is temptation is a personal process. What's poison to one person doesn't bother another person. We each have our own area of weakness. Charles Durham pointed this out. He said, we must admit that we have personal responsibility in the matter of temptation. The items so attractively displayed in the world by the world and the devil lure me because I'm a human being and sometimes I want what Satan and the world offer me. There is within every one of us a tendency and a temptation to blame other people when we fail and when things go wrong. Uh, that's a long, rich history of that. Adam did that in the Garden of Eden. He blamed Eve and then he blamed God for giving him Eve. Uh, and we follow suit. Blaming others is a built-in response uh, when we fail. But James says, when you're tempted, don't blame God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God is, if I can use the word, untemptable. He has never experienced sin, nor, nor can he. He's absolutely holy. He's absolutely righteous. He can't be solicited to evil, and he doesn't solicit anyone else with evil. So whenever you're tempted, and especially when you're tempted and fail, don't blame God. In fact, you probably can't even blame the devil. The devil gets blamed for a lot of things aren't his fault. (laughs) James says when a man is tempted, a woman is tempted, he's tempted by his own desires and drawn away. Um, We may try to pass the buck. We may try to say, well, it's God's fault, it's the devil's fault, it's, it's my sister's fault. But we have to take personal 
responsibility. We're personally responsible because sin only takes place when we agree to the temptation and follow it. Now, James emphasizes these two important points. First of all, he emphasizes God cannot be tempted. And secondly, he doesn't tempt anyone else. Look at verse 14. It says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desires. Sin is always a personal responsibility. Some might think, well, it's inconsistent to say that temptations may come from the devil and then still say it's my fault. Well, it's not inconsistent at all. The devil may offer, but we respond. There's a psychologist and theologian by the name of John White, and he wrote about this. He gave this illustration. He explained it this way. He said, have you ever fooled around with a piano? Open the top, press the loud pedal, and then sing a note into the piano as loudly as you can. Stop and listen. You will hear at least one chord vibrating in response to the note you sang. You sing and the string in the piano picks up your voice and plays it back. Here then is a picture of temptation. Satan calls out and you vibrate. The vibration is the lust James speaks of. Your desire is to go on responding to his call. If pianos have feelings, I imagine they turn on when the chord vibrates. There's nothing bad about vibrating. The chord was meant to vibrate and to vibrate powerfully, but it was meant to vibrate in response to a hammer, not in response to your voice. The appropriate response then is not to vibrate rapturously to the voice of the devil, but take your foot off the loud pedal and close the top of the piano. (laughs) Temptation is our responsibility. Martin Luther said it in his graphic way when he said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building nests in your hair. Uh, Temptation is a personal process. Third, James says the characteristic of temptation, it's it's a consistent process. Verse 14 describes the beginning of the process. Verse 15 describes the continuation. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There's the beginning. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The process of temptation is consistent. It always leads to death. It always leads to disaster. The first stage is desire. Now, we read that word lust in some of your translations, and we have a moral connotation to that word today uh, that didn't necessarily cover everything in the ancient world. It's really just the word for desire, and it isn't necessarily a wrong desire. What temptation does, again, is it seeks to get us to respond to that legitimate desire in an illegitimate manner. Temptation is often an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way out of the will of God. Um, For instance, it's not wrong to want to pass an examination. It is wrong to cheat in order to pass the examination. The temptation is an opportunity to do a good thing, pass the exam, but in a bad way, cheat to do it. 
James uses two very picturesque words to describe the process. He uses the word enticed, and he uses the phrase carried away. Enticed is sort of like a fishing term. It's, it's lure by bait. No temptation that comes appears to you as a temptation. Um, it doesn't come with warning labels. Uh, it's always alluring. There's always something attractive about it. Uh, you don't bait a fish hook with a football. You bait a fish hook with something that fish would like. And that's the way temptation comes to us, something alluring, something we would like. But the lure masks a reality. It may appear harmless, may look innocent, um, but inside is a hook. The word or the phrase carried away doesn't suggest brutality, kidnapping. It suggests persuasiveness. The lure is offered, and there's something inside us that likes what's being offered. We're drawn to it. There are forces in us which, until we get to heaven, are opposed to God. They rebel against what God wants. They, they would hide from God. They would disobey God. Uh, we may not like the fact that we're capable of sin. We may not like the fact that we respond to temptation sometimes. We may not like the fact that we're responsible when we do. But that doesn't change anything. The fact is, we are attracted. And we are responsible. And we must do something about it. So James discusses this capacity for sin within us because he doesn't want us to fool ourselves. He doesn't want us to go through life thinking as we often do when we see someone else fail in their area of weakness. Well, I would never do that. Given the right circumstances, oh yes, you would. Um, So after the first stage of desire comes the second stage of disobedience. He says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When our desire responds to that lure, we're hooked. And James actually uses two biological metaphors of conception. And once that occurs, the natural sequence just kicks in. And it comes to a conclusion in death. So when the desire in our mind meets the lure of the world, that's the point at which we're faced with a decision. I can either remind myself of where sin leads and say no to the temptation and reject the desire, or I can entertain it and think about it and kick it around in my mind and pretty soon be hooked. And sin leads to death. James says sin when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Disobedience eventually results in deaths. Satan's ultimate aim to destroy us. I think that James talks about death here as kind of the opposite to the crown of life that he talked about uh, in verse 12 when he talked about the way we respond to, to trials. And if we respond correctly, it leads to a crown of life. And here he talks about temptation and he says if we respond incorrectly, it leads to death. The fourth characteristic James gives for understanding temptation 
is that temptation is a deceptive process. Look at verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In verse 15, James used, used two ver- verbs, almost indistinguishable from one another. He talked about give birth and accomplish. Both refer to the birth process. And James chooses this analogy for a reason. Once the process is set in motion, there's something inevitable about it. There's something so deceptive about it. And that's why James warns, do not be deceived. He says, please don't believe the lie. Please don't be led astray. Satan is a liar. His goal is never your good. His goal is your destruction. And he'll use every deception to accomplish that goal. That's why he's good at baiting hooks. Uh, He's good at using appealing baits to hide the hook. Now, what is attractive to us is merely the bait. We don't see the hook. Lot never would have gone to Sodom if he hadn't lifted up his eyes and seen the well-watered plains before him. Uh, remembering that will help us reject the bait. Now, after giving us a picture of what temptation is, James moves on, and we need this. He moves on to tell us how to deal with it, Um, how to understand resistance. How are we going to resist temptation? If that's what we're called to do, how are we going to do that? He gives some very practical steps, and the first of them is, Look at God's character. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. James says, remember how good God is. And if you remember how good God is to you, that will help you resist temptation. That's the very thing that old Scottish preacher James Chambers uh, said in his point 18th hundreds English when he wrote about what he called the explosive power of a new affection. He said this, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. We know of no other way to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. Remember how good God is. That's one of the tricks of the devil, to try to convince you God isn't as good as he says he is, that God won't keep his word to you. He did that with Eve. God heard a question whether God was really good, whether God really had her best interest at heart. And once you start to doubt the love and the goodness of God, as Eve did, you'll be drawn to what Satan is is holding out. So the first step in resisting temptation is keep reminding yourself of how good God is. Someone pointed out that it was by remembering the goodness of God that Joseph resisted the temptation of Potiphar's wife. What kept him from sin is how good not only his master Potiphar had been to him, but how good God had been to him. And so he could resist that temptation when Potiphar's wife persistently, it says day after day, continued to try to seduce him. When we're tempted, 
We resist by meditating on the goodness of God. Secondly, we can resist temptation by remembering that everything we need is provided by God. Notice verse 17 again. The repetition of the idea of God giving every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift. God is a superb giver. And I think the emphasis here is on that adjective, every, every good gift. God's giving is inexhaustible. He gives everything that's possibly needed and holds nothing back. Um, He gives exactly what is appropriate. And each gift is, is perfect. And we get the specific gift that God gives, which we need in facing temptation. We're promised this. It, write this verse down. 1 Corinthians 10. Go home and read it. Memorize it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. God makes a way of escape. But he intends us to be involved in this too. He makes the way of escape, but we have to take it. In other words, God, when we face temptation, God expects us to fight. He expects us to push back. story is told of a riverboat captain who was approached by a smuggler who came aboard his boat and offered him a huge sum of money if he would take his boat to the shore and load contraband to smuggle down the river. And the captain turned him down. And so the smuggler doubled the offer. And the captain pulled out a pistol and put it to the man's head and said, every man has his price. You're getting too close to mine. Get off my boat. God expects us to resist, to fight, to push back. He expects us to keep short accounts with him, to care about how we behave, and he expects us to use common sense. He expects us to avoid deliberately going to those places and putting ourselves in situations where it's like tempting the devil to tempt us. great devotional writer of the last century named A.J. Gordon once wrote, avoiding temptation is next in importance to resisting temptation. It's not rocket science. If alcohol is a problem to you, don't go to the bar. If gluttony is a problem for you, don't go to one of those all-you-can-eat places. If pornography is a problem to you, unsubscribe to some channels. Don't go to some websites. It's not rocket science. Don't put yourself in a place where the devil is tempted to tempt you. God will make a way of escape, but we have to take it. And often, the way of escape to temptation is in one word, run. The British General Wellington once said, the best general is the one who knows how to conduct a retreat, knows when to run. The most successful resistors of temptation are those who know how to fight, and how to run. But we must push back. You know, as Christians, the Bible tells us we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And someday when we get to heaven, we will be saved from the 
presence of sin. That's not the case here. While we're here, it will always be that we're at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's a good thing for us to remember as we go through this life here that it will always be a sinner who walks with God. It will always be a sinner who walks with God. There will be victories. There will be defeats. We, we will never, on this side of heaven, ever get to the place where we don't need 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We'll never get to the place here where we don't need that verse. With that in mind, uh, I want to close with the wise comments penned by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers and probably one of yours. In a letter he once wrote to one of his correspondents, uh, he put this in perspective. He said, I know all about the despair of overcoming chronic temptations. It's not serious provided self-offended petulance, annoyance at breaking records, impatience, etc., don't get the upper hand. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall be very muddied and tattered children by the time we reach home, but the bathrooms are all ready, the towels are laid out, and clean clothes are in the closet. The only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give it up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present in us. It is the very sign of his presence. Father, we thank you that you're so practical as we face this life. Your desire is to help us and to use us and to make us lights in this, your fallen world. We know we're fallen people. We know we still have that ability to sin. We know we're still in danger of an enemy. Make us alert. Make us quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to respond to your word. And may you be glorified as we do that. For Jesus' sake, amen. Marty's going to come and lead us in the closing song, and then I'll close the service with a benediction.